0: Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Isaiah Sheese, the founding owner of Archetype Coffee, a coffee shop and purveyor of coffee in Omaha. Isaiah Sheese grew up in Spencer, Indiana, a small town with only three stoplights. He moved to Tulsa to go to a small Bible college for youth ministry, then worked for Life Church TV as a youth pastor part-time while starting in coffee at Shades of Brown. After three years working in youth ministry, Isaiah went to work at Double Shot Coffee, traveling to Colombia on his first buying trip, and starting to compete. This year, Isaiah has qualified to attend the national coffee competition in Seattle. Isaiah and his wife moved to Omaha where he opened Archetype Coffee in 2014 and is opening his second location in Omaha shortly. Isaiah, welcome to the
1: show. Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I don't know if this is a fair question. Are you able to talk a little bit about the history of coffee and its production as a sort of staple of consumer culture?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, Coffee is obviously one of those um, things that's been consumed for you know, thousands of years. It's not nearly as old as tea, but it's been around for quite a long time, uh, and it's taken many forms over this over the years. You know, whether it was just um, yeah from. The early years when they're just discovering it, you know, there's lots of folklore of where coffee came from, where these goats, you know, uh, a a herder stumbled upon these goats and he saw them dancing. And so basically they'd found the coffee cherries and eaten the cherries and obviously (laughs) gotten quite caffeinated. And so they were quite happy little fellas, you know, um, starting in Ethiopia uh, and then, yeah, being brought over, you know, through the Americas and to europe and then to the united states so yeah it's been around for quite some time uh in the early years obviously coffee was i mean it's it's, if you read the history of it a lot of people were roasting their own coffee in their homes it was like they would bake bread every day and they would roast coffee every day and so they were drinking and eating fresh bread and drinking fresh coffee every day and then through the world wars you know things happened and transformed it into it being more mass-produced and um Depending on people's budgets, you know, it was all about <laughs> saving money and stretching coffee. And yeah, so then you have Folgers and Maxwell House kind of stepping on the scene. And then it's probably not until Starbucks comes around that you start to see kind of what's, you know, created the specialty coffee industry. And then we have different waves and what we're called third wave coffee. And so you've got third wave is basically, second wave was more, um, you know, definitely what Starbucks was doing, everything was blended. And so there wasn't a lot of traceability with single origin coffees. So coming from a particular country, a particular region, a particular farmer, uh, it was mostly all blended together. And then Starbucks was notorious for dark roasting everything just cause if you're going to be a big machine, how do you standardize something like that? And so, um, fast forward third wave is kind of you know we focus on traceability and where does the coffee come from and our goal is to hopefully roast the coffee to where we're um accenting and expressing that terroir and so you're tasting the land you're tasting the variety of coffee and then third wave is also you know uh, manual brewing is huge and latte art is huge and um yeah, kind of focusing on those things and really expressing the craft. So kind of like culinary artistry today. So
0: thinking about dancing goats and what you just said, it it reminds me in some ways of how one might track wine and wine consumption. And, and I'm sure alcohol has a different, but also a fairly long history like coffee. So dancing goats... Um, wine alcohol (laughs) (laughs) but it sounds as if coffee's had a similar trajectory in some ways this um this sense of it having been a craft perhaps in its first wave and then with growing manufacturing capabilities globalization there was perhaps a mass production yeah usually wine yeah but now um you know there's also a lot of science and a lot of um Uh, artisanal qualities and appreciation to wine consumption now. It sounds very similar to coffee.
1: Yeah, very similar. Uh, Especially the last 10 years, you know, uh, coffee's finally applying a lot more science to, uh, obviously, the agricultural side of things, um, with climate change happening and uh, lots of diseases of uh, fighting against agriculture, like their, um, World Coffee Research is a huge, incredible organization that's doing all types of, um, agricultural research, trying to catalog coffee varieties and hybrids and things like that. And then you have like UC Davis, they just opened a huge coffee research facility. Um, and they're just pushing the bar and researching as much as they can and trying to figure it out. Uh, yeah, because if you look into kind of the trajectory of coffee, the consumption as the world becomes more and more westernized, which I'm not saying that's a great thing, but you know, you have countries like um, China and Japan and the Koreas and Russia that are all starting to, they want to they want to know about wine, they want to know about coffee, they want to know about bourbon, all the things that we're into, and so the consumption is in increasing hugely but the production isn't and so they say as far as like 15 years out i mean there could be some really serious (laughs) repercussions of of supply and demand and so that and then just with like coffee leaf rust is attacking coffee trees and that's basically a disease where um All the leaves, they fall off. It causes the leaves to fall off, and so the tree won't produce fruit. And that's a huge epidemic that's, you know, um, yeah, taken over some places. So it's kind of crazy.
0: I confess that I hadn't really given that much thought to the agricultural production of coffee and the environmental impacts that we should be attentive to. I mean, I had been aware of it, but but like many people, coffee to me was was just where I drank it and, and what I was drinking sure. um, in an urban environment with this awareness that the packaging said single blend from Ethiopia or something from Peru. And clearly that's been somewhat naive and ignorant on my part. So I'd really like you to talk a bit more about maybe that first buying trip that you had to Colombia oh, sure. and then what's happened since then um, in your own growing appreciation for the importance of coffee in agricultural terms and environmental terms.
1: Yeah. And that trip was kind of life changing uh, to see it grown. It's grown on mountains, you know, and most people don't realize that it's grown between the Tropic of Capricorn and the Tropic of Cancer uh, near the equator. And it's usually the higher the coffee is grown, the higher the quality uh, the only country that uses machines really to pick coffee is Brazil. So all the coffee that is consumed is largely hand-picked. And so one tree will produce one pound of coffee. So uh, just think about that for a second. <laughs> one tree will produce one pound of coffee. And what's the average consumption, do you think, for the ordinary American I mean, like a normal American. Normal. I don't mean it like that. Uh, the no, average, yeah. yeah, the average coffee consumer. I mean, if you do a pound a week, so one person doing a pound a week for one household, it's it puts it going to Columbia really put things in perspective. Seeing people handpick these things on the side of a mountain, carrying the cherries down, you realize the amount of labor that goes into that little cup of coffee that you're drinking. And so it's not, I always tell myself, it's like, you're not drinking coffee. You're drinking someone's labor of love and hard work and livelihood, really. And so it was definitely a defining moment, I think, in my career. Just, we're so... um We're so detached, I think, from a lot of types of agriculture. You know, we don't think necessarily about where the vegetables come from or how hard of work it takes. And if we have too much rain or not enough rain or uh, diseases or bugs that might be attacking it. So we don't really think about it. And then you go as far as coffee. You know, the only place that's grown really in America is Hawaii. And so unless you've been there... You've never seen it. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. We're not really thinking where'd this come from. I just want it to taste good and I want it now and I needed to wake up, you know. So being in Colombia was huge. I think the other thing that um, really made me, my mind work is most of the farmers that we visited, none of them had ever consumed their coffee. Almost every farm that I went to was serving instant coffee, and everyone wanted you to drink coffee. And it's like instant coffee is so terrible. (laughs) At this point in my career, you know what I mean. Like there's no going back. And so uh, they never drank their own coffee. It was just corn to them. And so basically, in Colombia and a lot of countries, is they would plant whatever was going to make more money. So in Colombia, it was either sugar or coffee, and depending on the year, they would rip up all the coffee trees and plant sugar or vice versa. You know, in countries like Ethiopia, there are other agricultural things like chat, um, which is a slightly narcotic um, plant that can be grown and people chew on it. And a lot of coffee farms are getting rid of coffee because it's not making the money that they need to make and they'll plant that. So it was really eye-opening to see it firsthand.
2: Way down among Brazilians, coffee beans grow by the billions So they've got to find those extra cups to fill They've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil You can't get cherry soda, cause they've got to sell their water. And the way things are, I guess they never will They've got a zillion tons of coffee in Brazil No tea or tomato juice You'll see, no potato juice Cause the planters down in Santos are say no, no, no. A politician's daughter was accused of drinking water and was fined a great big $50 bill. They've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil.
0: What about the environmental aspects?
1: Yeah, uh I mean, global warming's happening and it's hugely affecting the coffee world, you know. Uh, especially with, you know, uh, water. It takes a fair amount of water to produce coffee, not just to grow it, but once you pick these cherries, how do you get those cherries off? And so depending on the country, uh, and like in Colombia, they use this machine. It's called a Dismos and it's basically this machine that, is flushing water over the cherry, and it takes off the skin of the cherry, the meat of the cherry, and then it goes into these channels that they're rinsing water down, and the floaters are scooped off, and those are the bad cherries that you don't want. The ones that sink, they move them into these big fermentation tanks that are like huge swimming pools, and so they soak the coffee because they have to get the rest of that mucilage off the coffee and so, it takes a lot of water, you know, to produce coffee. And so, like in Ethiopia and other countries, that they don't have near as much water, uh, they will um, they do a lot of sun-dried coffee. So, they dry the cherry onto the seed, which is going to impart all those sugars in it, you know. And so, then they take it to a dry mill to get the rest off. So, they're not having to use as much water in those types of processing. But, um, yeah, water... Um, like I I talked about, just disease, coffee diseases that, you know, they always say that if you make a hybrid or a GMO, you know, to combat this disease or to be resistant to it, you know, they're saying that the diseases are morphing much faster than our technology of genetically modifying these things. And so it's definitely not necessarily the answer. It's almost like a Band-Aid. And so trying to figure out how can we combat these things uh, more effectively. So, there are some farmers that are trying to farm, like, wine, and they're basically trying to farm soil and not farm trees. Basically, these diseases aren't bad, they're just bad for coffee, you know what I mean? And that's the funny thing about it, is, like, to think, oh, wait, this disease isn't bad, because it's decomposing something, right? Which gives nutrients into soil and things like that, and so, yeah, you... We have to learn how to take care of the soil, which will in turn take care of the plants. And so just a different type of mindset for farming is starting to, you know, take place in the coffee industry. I do want to come back and talk a little bit about what coffee looks like in its
0: natural state compared to what we end up in the package with. Um, Because some of what you've been describing is surprising to me. Um, Before we do that, though, my wife has got us starting to buy coffee that is bird friendly. Sure. So we're being a little more attentive to the implications of what our consumption of a product means as you go back up the supply chain. Sure. And you've been talking about that a little bit, but I'm wondering if we are on the cusp of needing to be much more attentive as consumers of the impact of our consumption further up the supply chain, uh, maybe to the detriment of the land, to the people, to local economies. Just wondering what's happening further on the supply chain.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um... Like bird friendly, those types of certifications are really interesting. Uh, so there's bird friendly, there's Rainforest Alliance, there's Fair Trade Organic. Uh, those are just to name a few. Which some of them they're really great because, in some respects, in one respect, it's like they're if you're going to be rainforest alliance, that means that you have to have a certain amount of rainforest to what you're farming. It's like a, a certain ratio of land that you're not going to plant coffee on and you're going to keep it pristine. Same way with kind of like the bird friendly. And so then you have like fair trade Organic, right? Uh, which a lot of the coffees that we have are grown organically, but the farmers don't have the money to um, pay for the certification to be certified organic. And then on a local level, for me, we don't—we're ha- not certified organic roasters, which is once again an expensive thing, even for me. And so, for us to be, once we receive that fair trade organic coffee, we can't advertise it as fair trade organic because once we touch it, it's no longer organic. So, the certifications are great, but a lot of it is just having a conversation with your barista and asking them about the coffee and where it comes from because fair trade organic is is good in some respects because it is going to guarantee a farmer a certain wage but almost all of our coffees we pay double what fair trade pays their farmers uh, because that's part of our heart and part of our ethos of who we are is wanting to make sure that the farmers are getting compensated properly so that there is sustainability It is, I would say, it's not about what's stamped on the bag, but it's having that conversation with the barista, like, hey, where did this coffee come from? What can you tell me about it? Uh, Because you can definitely find out a lot more about the coffee than just looking at the shelf, and, yeah, it's tricky.
0: I think it might have been in the 70s, 60s, 70s, uh, when the BBC did an April Fool's joke, and they actually broadcast a little uh, news piece about a decline in production of spaghetti. And you had a reporter standing underneath a spaghetti tree and this tree was draped with spaghetti and so on and so forth. Um, And of course, it caused a furor about people worrying about the decline in availability (laughs) of spaghetti. And uh, of course, so there was that gag. But I say that because I drink a reasonable amount of coffee, but I have no idea what coffee looks like in the wild and how it gets to turn up in this Plastic bag, either looking like a little black bean or it's already pre ground for me. So please help me with my ignorance.
1: Sure. Yeah. So it's, they're not actually trees. They're shrubs. Uh, we call them coffee trees because they can grow quite tall. Uh, but how they grow is, depending on the varietal, it's just, um, it takes three, f- three to five years. It takes about three to five years to get a full harvest. So th- From the time you plant it, it's going to take, yeah, three to five before you get a full harvest. And then they look like these branches that come out and they have different leaf patterns depending on the varietals. And they have clumps of cherries. And depending on the variety, once again, sometimes they grow in like little ball clumps where you'll have like eight all in a section and then like a three inches and then another clump and then a couple inches and another clump Uh, or sometimes they're just interspersed all out but before the cherry can grow it has to flower just like all budding plants and if you ever get a chance to smell coffee flowers it's intoxicating it's probably one of the most beautiful smells uh that you can yeah They could bottle that. I mean, it would be the best perfume ever. And so once the flowers fall off, then the cherries can form and grow. So then they're picked, and then they have to be processed. And so inside of each cherry is two seeds that face each other. So they're not beans, just so you know. They're not legumes. Uh, (laughs) They're seeds. And the reason why they're flat on one side is because they face each other. And then so underneath the cherry skin, you've got some fruit, and then... Underneath that, you have this, it's what's called parchment, and that's the protector of the seed. And so, after you take the cherry, the skin, and all those things off, and you dry it, then you have to get that parchment encasing off of it, and that's done at a dry mill. And then, so to be specialty grade, I know this is boring, it's a lot of information, but to be specialty grade, it has to be between around 11 to 12 percent moisture content left into the seed. So, we call Coffee when we get it as roasters green coffee because of that chlorophyll that's left in it. And so then we roast the coffee,
0: yeah, is
1: the fruit that you mentioned in the cherries that edible? Or? so what you do? yeah, so the first time it was the second time I went to origin. I was in El Salvador and I don't know how many cherries I ate, but like I got a gnarly stomach ache. Uh, (laughs) Just because, I mean, the fruit has caffeine in it too, you know, and I was just, so basically what you do is you take the cherry and you squeeze it, kind of like pop, you kind of pop the fruit and the meat and the seeds will just shoot in your mouth. And it has kind of like a, a sweet honey taste. And so they're delicious. And so I would just like, pop i just be walking and pick a ripe cherry and pop it in my mouth and yeah who knows how many i ate that day but yeah so you can suck on the fruit part of it on the inside and then you know you can just spit out the seeds or whatever but it's they are delicious yeah you've touched
0: on this third wave moment that we're in regarding the the sale of and consumption of coffee. And you also mentioned how Starbucks perhaps set the scene with this second wave by creating a place, an experience in which society consumed uh, coffee, modern society consumed coffee. How do you see coffee and culture interrelating? And I'm wondering about that broadly, but also specifically with your own work at Archetype Coffee, which is your own coffee shop.
1: Uh, they've always been interrelated. You know, coffee houses have been around for centuries. You know, revolutions were born in coffee houses. Uh, philosophy is discussed in coffee houses. You know, it's coffee is unique uh, because it's consumed all over the world. It's I think it's one of the beautiful things. It's one of the things that definitely connects the world. Coffee, I think. Uh, but it's also... A place where people meet and talk about things, and they are sober. So it's kind of like the unbar, <laughs> you know, in the morning. Uh, and it's also a ritual. It's one of the few rituals I think that Americans have, uh, and I think it's a beautiful thing because we don't in America. I just don't see a lot of those, yeah, rituals as I do in a lot of other cultures. And so, you know, in the morning, it's something that we use to wake up. And so, uh, archetype. I think largely my goal has always been to produce the most delicious coffees and give people a different experience, something that they haven't ever had, but that market is really small and the larger market is developing community, you know, it's a place where people come and they meet and they talk and they, um, yeah, they connect to people and I think that's one of the things that makes Archetype so special is we're good at connecting people and setting an atmosphere in an environment where people can come and talk and discuss and have a good time one of my philosophies has always been like make archetype like cheers where everyone wants to go where everyone knows your name and they all know and they're all glad you came i mean that's archetype you know what i mean so whether you come once a month or five times a week you know whatever it is we want everyone when they walk in the door to have yeah just a great experience. I know that, um, you
0: know, the 1650s to 1750s in London, the, the coffeehouse scene just exploded. Yeah. And um, that idea of ordinary people talking about issues in those environments was enough at that time, provocative enough at that time, that Charles II tried to ban coffee houses yeah. And, and I, I think he called them something like seminaries of sedition. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, yeah, people talk about everything. We At any moment uh, during the week, there are lots of politicians that come in, and then there are lots of students, lots of doctors, and just normal neighborhood people. And so it's just fun just to see the conversations that strike up. And one thing that we always like to do is just introduce people that would probably not normally ever be in the same circle of people. I think that's what's interesting about archetype is you have all different walks of life that come in And then our goal is always just to connect people. We know most people well enough that I can connect someone, whether it's food or whether it's politics or religion or anything. Like there's some connecting point or common thread that you can always be like, hey, this is Bill. Hey, this is Susie. You guys should meet, you know? And so I think that's always a fun, fun part of it. You are listening to Lives. We'll
0: be back after the break.
3: Talking with my baby over cigarettes and coffee. And to tell you that, dog, I've been so satisfied. Honey, since I've met you. I've been around And all the good-looking girls I've met They just don't seem to fit in No, it fits particularly sad But it seems so natural,
0: I'm Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Isaiah Sheese, the founding owner of Archetype Coffee. So tell me more about the business of coffee. I'm wondering as I sit here, if like many industries and businesses that are associated with some kind of agricultural product, the margins are quite tight. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me more about the business of being in coffee as as well as the fact that you seem to be called to that business.
1: Coffee is a tricky one. Uh, I think especially if you have a mission behind it and our mission and goal is to eventually be able to buy farm direct, and to you know be able to travel down and develop relationships with farmers and make sure that they're getting paid a premium uh, and so the tricky part about coffee is, you know, we're selling a $2.50 two drink, right? Up to maybe $5, you know, on our menu, $5.25 is the most expensive drink that we have. And so in order to pay rent in a pretty up and coming neighborhood, I've got to sell a lot, a lot, a lot of drinks to pay the bills. And then if you're trying to pay farmers more money, that definitely cuts in your margin. We use local milk, which is more expensive than Using you know mass-produced milk, and so it's a tricky dance for sure. I think the other tricky thing is we only have limited seats, and so if you're a bar, you want people to sit and drink and drink and drink, right? Uh, if you're in a restaurant, you want people to have an appetizer and then have a main course and then have dessert and then you know maybe have a digestif or an after you know dinner cocktail. Well, coffee doesn't um, intoxicate you it <laughs> it kind of amps you up and so most people will only have one drink you know and so with limited amount of space it's that tricky dance of wanting people to be in your space but also needing them to move on to their next place so you can have other people in your space and so we've had lots of complaints about how our chairs are uncomfortable it's kind of intentional <laughs> Uh, not because we don't want people to, you know, feel welcome or warm, but just in the advent of the way society is turned, everyone works from home or everyone can work from a coffee shop. And so, you know, you can sit on and at you know, at archetype for eight hours on a two dollar and fifty cent drink, and though we love you being there, it just doesn't pay rent. And so that's the other tricky side of things of how do you be hospitable and warm and welcome, welcoming, but also turn customers quickly as well
0: you also though sell other products associated with coffee as a product that that aren't necessarily consumed on the premises
1: yeah so we sell whole bean coffee which is great you know getting people to drink coffee at home as well is is huge for our business and model that's where it helps us a lot Um, we also sell pastries we have an in-house pastry chef kate anderson she um, tears it up in the kitchen, makes lots of sweet and savory treats. And so those also help too. Um, but yeah, margins are a little bit better with coffee than food. Food's another tricky, tricky business. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Given the difficulties, uh, why do you do it? Um, with coffee, it's, it's one of those things there, I don't feel like there are a lot of industries that you can affect change locally in your community you can affect change nationally and i think you can also affect change globally and so it's a very unique industry where whether it's yeah all any of those you can affect a positive change you know so in the community just loving on people connecting people that's one way that is super positive you know Uh, another way is Be able to get down to the farmers is once we have these relationships with customers and consumers, we're able to share where the coffee comes from, you know, on a friend level instead of like just yelling at people, you need to buy more expensive coffee, we need to pay the farmers more, this is the reason why, you know. uh, It it allows us to have a conversation with people when people are ready for it or interested in, you know, what we do. You know, I think that's the, the unique thing is. As you develop that relationship with customers, it becomes reciprocal. You know, it's like, oh, you, I don't know anything about you. Why do you do what you do? You know, and it opens up that conversation. And then, you know, nationally, competitions, it's a great way to get your name out there. You can then hopefully sell enough coffee to be able to get down to farmers and start buying more. So I do it because it's something that I'm super passionate about and I, I love it. Every aspect of it. It's just feel. I mean, traveling to Colombia and just seeing the people that pick the f- coffee, grow the coffee. Just the whole chain from start to finish is just a beautiful thing. It takes so many hands to create this beautiful cup of coffee that people are drinking. You know, if it's not grown well, if it's not picked at the right time, if it's not dried right, if it's not roasted right, if it's not ground right, brewed right, there's so many different uh, facets to brewing coffee. And so it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing that takes a lot of people to make the whole ship go around, you know. And I think that's one of the other aspects that I love so much about it is it's a huge team effort. And so there, there really isn't any star player along the line, you know. Everyone has to play their part and execute at a high level in order to deliver this incredible product. I do
0: want to talk a little bit about your childhood and then your transition through youth ministry. Sure. But just jumping ahead, do you see any correlation or similarity between church and coffee, the calling of church, the calling of the coffee business?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, it's loving people. I mean, if you boil Jesus' ministry down, it was loving people and uh working at a church wasn't really a good fit for me the nine to five uh and it being a job I think was a hard thing for me too I mean I learned a tremendous amount of things and gained and wonderful wonderful relationships but just the nine to five sitting behind a computer I just you know I couldn't do it you know and so coffee is similar we just love on people and we serve them a great product and the unique thing about coffee is sometimes it's the best part of people's day, you know? And so we have an, a unique opportunity every day to be able to uh, start people off on the right foot, you know, and greet them kindly and warmly and where they are and make sure they don't have any toothpaste on their shirt or on their face or, you know, uh, so that we can send them off in a proper manner. But yeah, I think it's one of the most unique things is that we might be the best part of someone's day. And so, it's always our goal to Yeah, just meet people where they are and serve them an incredible drink and be kind and hopefully it sets their day off
0: well. So tell me a little bit more then about your childhood and your growth into youth ministry.
1: Uh yeah, my parents were both Christians and so you know I went to church every Sunday and Wednesday. It was always a ritual. And there weren't too many Sundays or Wednesdays that I missed, and started playing drums. And so I played drums at church all the time. And uh, it was a really small town. We had, you know, three stoplights, uh, very much a farming community. And so. Yeah, it was a pretty good childhood. You you know, the place where we grew up was very beautiful. Most of the top part of Indiana is flat because the glaciers just kind of bulldoze it all. But when you get to South Central, it's these beautiful rolling hills and huge, huge trees. And so fall is always one of the most magical times of year. And then the winter stars are so close, you can almost touch them. And so, yeah, I think I had a pretty great childhood. I
0: don't know much about Spencer, Indiana, so... How would you paint that picture of experiencing it as a child?
1: Very quiet town. Everyone knows everyone's business. You know, my my mother owned a salon, and so there was really no way that I was going to get away with anyth- anything. You know, she cut the principal's hair and half the teacher's hairs, and uh, there wasn't a lot of culture there. You know, I think in my school there was only two African-American kids at the time, and they were both adopted, and so, you know, that was definitely an interesting aspect of growing up you know I remember showing up to school and you know two pickup trucks would be tied together and they'd be playing tug of war with each other in the parking lot and I mean what kids doing footloose too oh man I was about that bad you know (laughs) you know uh yeah so definitely a country country you know town so
0: And in the transition, uh, w- what um, drew you to actually going to study at a Bible college?
1: Man, yeah, it was funny if you felt like you had any sort of call of ministry. It was either growing up, it was like, you're going to be a pastor, and those guys were usually boring. Um, missionaries always seemed to be really weird when they came to my church. You know, they'd have, um, you know, where you push the button and like the slides, the different slides, it was like a picture show, and it was always really terrible, or like a you know, or like a children's pastor, and it's like, man, so I just, I felt, you know, I would love teenagers, I loved being crazy, and so that's kind of why I went to youth ministry, so I could, in my mind, I guess, stay young and fun, and yeah.
0: And then you were working with this youth ministry, which I'm sure was rewarding in its own way, but as you say, some of the business of ministering sounded a little tedious for you, so what was the epiphany that you realized that coffee was...
1: The calling that should be your full-time endeavor? Just, I, I mean, you realize the community of coffee is very much like a church, you know. Uh, it's just, it, it should be like a church where it's all, all accepting. And so, it was one of those, we have all different walks of life of people coming every day, right? We're having, <laughs> and we're gathering, and uh, we're communing together. And so, it was just for me, it was just like seeing the impact that you can have globally, you know, locally, nationally, globally was one of those, like, you can change people's lives in a positive manner if you do business right, you know, and so archetype, the meaning of that is the original of all things. Um, The original is something that all things model themselves after. So, the goal for archetype has always been, you know, can we do business in a way that other businesses want wanted to do the same thing, you know, so looking at businesses like Tom's, you know, where they're doing the one for one or like boxed water, you know, where they're building wells and things like that. It's like, can we do something where we're making money, but we're giving tons of money away and helping build communities across the world. And so it seemed like a, after... You know, visiting Colombia and visiting El Salvador seemed like a pretty natural thing um, to go from the church into something I'm a little bit more passionate about.
0: You also clearly have a talent for it as well and you've mentioned competitions and contests so i'd like to understand that more again i seem to be ignorant about so many things to do with coffee but i had no idea that there were
1: coffee competitions so explain that to sure uh, so the ones that i've been competing in is the united states barista championship Uh, The competition that usually everyone knows are latte art competitions. And so basically you pour a latte and I pour a latte and whichever one is the best, you know, that's the one that advances or wins. But the United States Barista Championship, you have 15 minutes to serve four sensory judges and then you have a two technical judge and a head judge. You serve all the sensory judges, a single espresso, a single milk drink, and then you create a signature beverage. Um, not using alcohol. And then they judge you on coffee knowledge, bar management, taste, waste, all of those things. And so that's the one that I typically compete in. Yeah.
0: And so I understand that recently you were, you placed second in the regional competition. So you are advancing to the national competition in April in Seattle. Yeah, that's correct. So tell me a little bit more about how the regional competition went.
1: Yeah, so there's 60 competitors all over the U.S. uh, coming to compete. A lot of them have coaches, which is really expensive. I have not had a coach. Uh, You have to bring all of your own glassware. You bring your coffee. The only thing they provide is the espresso machine and grinder. And so it's kind of an expensive game to get into. And I've always wanted to make a mockumentary out of it because it's one of these weird niche worlds of like when you go back into the competitor's room, everyone has plastic gloves on and they're polishing their silverware frantically, you know, because obviously you're hopped up on lots of caffeine and lots of baristas will have bottles of scotch or bourbon just to take shots that kind of take the edge off and everyone has their headphones on and they're like in the zone and it's a bizarre a bizarre world uh, to experience. And so, yeah, I've always wanted to make a mockumentary out of it. But it's intense, intense competition. You know, if you do well, if you win the U.S., you represent the United States in the World Barista Championship. And so it does a lot for your career and your community as far as just exposure. And that's part of the reason why. I've kind of put my head down and continued to compete year after year after year just because being in the middle of America, we don't get near the attention that, you know, the coasts get or big cities like, you know, Chicago or New York or LA. And so you just kind of have to put your head down and continue to persevere. So you mentioned that one
0: aspect of the competition is a signature beverage yeah, are you going to give too much away
1: to the competition if you tell us about that signature beverage? No, no, no. Uh, it's the hardest. It's the hardest part of the competition, just to make the coffee balance. Has to be balanced. It usually has to be coffee forward. Has been the the thing, and so they're always pretty. Interesting. So, this one basically, mine was two parts. Each place setting for the judges had a tea kettle in it, and then with hot water. And then there were four vials that I had four different ingredients. And so, in the beginning, I instructed the judges to take the lid off the teapot and then pick up each vial, smell the vial, what's in it, and then empty the contents into the teapot. So, there were blood orange bitters, wakatai, which is like a Peruvian black mint that's kind of like uh, citrus hops, um, whole. Basil, known as Tulsi, which this one kind of tasted like uh, Concord Grape Candy. And then the last one was Seedlip 94, which is a distilled non-alcoholic spirit made of cardamom, um, cinnamon, cloves, grapefruit, oak, lemon. And so I had them put in the tea kettle and then I went and did pull the espressos did that. And then I came back and then I added dry ice to each one of their teapots and put the lid on it. And what that did was it vaporized all of those things in there. And so there's this vapor coming out the spout of the teapot. And then I pulled the shots of espresso and I added a wakatae and holy basil simple syrup, um, some seed lip 94, and I stirred that all up. And then you pour that into... Their drink and you set it right underneath that tea spout and that vapor would fall into the teacup as they bring it to their mouth there's still vapor in the cup and right when you get to drink that vapor like hits you in the face so the aroma of the coffee and then the drink so pretty involved
0: that sounds obscenely
1: good it's called smoke and mirrors in the, old days, in the old days, I've been competing. This is my sixth full season, so I'm kind of like an old guy competing. But in the old days, everyone would name their signature beverage, and that was kind of the fun part of it. So this year, I'm bringing it back and naming them. So. I love that. So as we draw to a close,
0: what do you have to share, do you think? What, what should we know about coffee, about archetype, about the future of coffee its place in our culture?
1: What's your final word? My final word, uh, coffee is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, like I said, it's it's a team team effort to bring this this magical drink. You know, it, it takes so many hands to get it here. And so, I would say know who you're drinking, not what you're drinking. Meaning, where does this coffee come from? And I think that's hugely important uh, because. It supports the livelihood of another community and another country and another small village, you know, and I think that's important to see that we can affect change locally, but then we can affect change in a big way nationally and, uh, more so I guess even globally. And so just know where your coffee comes from. And yeah, I don't know. I think that's
0: about it. Well, I know where my coffee comes from. It comes from
1: <laughs> archetype coffee. Uh, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs>
2: Some haven't slept a week. I walk the floor and watch the door, and in between I drink black coffee.
0: To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Isaiah Sheese. Thank you, Isaiah, for
1: being here. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar Mctizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.